0: Hello and welcome to the 8th episode of the Why Behind the What, where the what can start a conversation, but the why can open up one's soul. My name is Nathan Albert, and as always, I am so glad you are listening today. Before we get started, a couple of quick updates. I announced a couple episodes ago that I would raffle off an autographed copy of my book, Embracing Love, which, if you haven't gotten a copy, you can do so on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Or if you just see me around personally, I can sell you a copy right then and there. Uh, But to anyone who reviewed my or shared my podcast, I was going to put you in a raffle where you could win it. And this week's winner reviewed the podcast on iTunes, so congrats to Nini23. If you are listening, contact me. Do I know you? I think I might. I don't know. But contact me. I will send you an autographed copy of my book as soon as possible. Second, if you haven't listened to the last episode, I strongly encourage you to do so. I interviewed 16 of my LGBTQ friends about their reactions to the mass shooting uh, in Orlando. It is one of my favorite episodes so far, so I encourage you to check that out. Now, with everything that's been going on in our country in the last few weeks, from the shooting and death of Alton Sterling, to the shooting and death of Philando Castile, to the Black Lives Matter movement that continues, to the countless protests that are happening all over the U.S., to the most recent shooting in Dallas, I wanted to do an episode that addresses some of these topics and allows us to hear from individuals who are working for racial justice and change in our in our society. So today... I'm interviewing my friend, Darren Calhoun. Darren and I met through the Marin Foundation uh, as we were both in Chicago. He is one of the most beautiful souls I know. He's an extroverted hugger, an incredible photographer. He's this prophetic voice, this powerful activist, and he's a wonderful worship leader. And I'm so glad he is on the podcast today. Hello, Darren. Welcome to my podcast. Hey, hey, Nathan. Glad you're here. Definitely a pleasure. Um, as uh, Darren's been on the podcast before, actually, in my Orlando episode a, a couple weeks ago. But Darren, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Uh, what have you done with your life? In a in a nutshell, and uh, what are you doing now? What are you currently doing?
1: Sure thing. Uh, I am Darren Calhoun. I am from Chicago, born and raised. Grew up on the South Side. Currently living on the West Side. For anyone who's familiar. Um, and what I do is a lot of things. I have uh, three things that occupy the majority of my time. First, I'm a photographer. I spend a lot of time doing photography for nonprofits and community organizations, um, as well as events and, and all that fun stuff. Um, so that's a lot of, a lot of fun, but it's also the opportunity for me to document what um, community organizations are doing. And so that ties into um, how I actually got into being a community organizer and an activist. Um, and so with that, I am an associate fellow for Evangelicals for Social Action. Um, it's an organization out of Eastern University and um, the Cider Center in Philadelphia. And what I do there is I'm helping the organization and I'm helping people who engage with the organization to um, become more involved and to see things through the lens of racial justice. And so, for example, just this past weekend in uh, Hot Springs, North Carolina, we did uh, the Wild Goose Festival, and we had a a pre-festival one-day racial justice institute. And so that was awesome as a time for about 68 people to come together and learn about the history, context, and what we can do in racial justice. So that kind of stuff makes me absolutely excited. And then lastly, um, I'm also a worship leader at Urban Village Church in the South Loop, and I've been doing that since the beginning of the year. Um, I've been a worship leader in other churches, um, but this is a a new position and a new opportunity in a church that is absolutely about the things that I love. It's an anti-racist church, as well as it's an LGBT inclusive church um, here in Chicago. And so I really love those things, and they lead me all over the city and sometimes all over the country. But... I stay busy and I like it.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. I love what Urban Village is doing. I mean, they've been—they are just this movement across the city that are that it's doing some great things as well as uh, ESA. I mean, ESA is—they're doing some pretty incredible things. So, if you, I'll put links and all that to those websites uh, in the in the show notes. But if you are in Chicago or interested in uh, what Darren and I will talk about, we'll we'll have that in there, um, and I encourage you to check that out. Um, Darren, what for you? um, I mean, I guess my first question, kind of with everything that's been going on this past week, um, from the shooting in Dallas, I mean, even to the shooting in Orlando, uh, almost now a month ago, um, with the constant videos that are coming out of shooting after shooting, uh, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, I guess my first question is, just how are you doing? Uh, How? What what emotionally is this doing to you as a um, a man living in Chicago?
1: Yeah, Um, it is. There's a lot. There's a lot. Um, When I first heard about um, about the most recent shootings, um, I was kind of away. I was in in North Carolina and basically on top of a mountain with no cell phone coverage. And very, very limited internet access during certain times of the day. And so I I had a little bit of a reprieve. I couldn't be engaged on Facebook and on Twitter the way I normally am. Um, But I knew something had happened, and I knew it was huge. And I didn't have a a full sense of what was going on until the shootings happened in Dallas. Somebody kind of called me and told me, hey, have you heard about this? Um, And so in that moment, I got sad. Uh, it was just once again. There's just a relentless, ongoing violence and struggle that, that in some ways we have to validate to people. We have to explain to people. We have to to so frequently um, make this real to people why this is why this affects us and how this affects us. Um, and then I was already, even as I'm hearing it real time, already preparing for the ways that this would be blamed on Black Lives Matter, um, already preparing for the ways that we would, um, we would have to kind of gird ourselves up and support each other. And so I knew that when I came down from the mountaintop that there was going to be hmm. a lot of work to do. Um, and that kind of leads me into the other piece of it is that everything from what happened in Orlando to our most recent round of violent shootings, um, the need for self-care becomes prominent. And mm. one of the things that I, uh, I don't really, I physically don't have a television set, um, but I take in a lot of my media on, online. Um, and one of the things that happened, even as I, I'm out of the normal TV news cycle, um, what happens online happens quickly, it happens real time. And it's and in some ways it never goes to sleep. It never signs off. The, the show never comes to a close. And so I I realized that I have to pull back sometimes. I decided that I, I won't watch the videos of the shootings or the killings that police do. Um, that that violence like I'm I'm the kind of person who doesn't even watch horror movies. Um, gore and violence they even even fictional gore and violence really have an impact on my soul. And so as real and as important the videos are, and it's important for other people to watch, and I'm not saying that, that others shouldn't watch it, but for me and my own health and safety, I'm like, yeah, I, I know what's happening. We've seen this over and over and over. There's not like something shocking or surprising that's gonna come. i of seeing another black person ruthlessly and violently and viciously killed. Um, I'm still going to do the work that I do. I, I have, I've seen enough, I, I know what the narrative is. Um, so I, yeah, so just as an act of self-care, I try to limit my exposure to that kind of video. Um, but it's also, I remember when, uh, that on, on your previous podcast, when Orlando happened, it, it stirred in me my response to love. I've got to, I've got to become even more loving not to make up for or not to try to fill in some kind of deficit but to be more authentic for who and to, to live more authentically into who i am that i have to ex- exude love right now that that is the response that comes out of the, the hurt and out of the sadness that um, i really do believe that love wins i really do believe that love changes and, um and it's not a happy sappy you know, oh, if we could just all get together and hug each other and sing kumbaya. No. I I think it's the kind of love that Jesus had where if it costs everything, where if it means that you're going to be uncomfortable and sometimes in pain, um, that if it means the course of your life may be cut short, that's the kind of self-giving sacrificial love that, that I have to see, um, to see my people free, to see my people liberated. Um, and that means that that the work that I do really does matter too. That the way I lead in a church or the way that I speak online about current events, um, that all of that is informed by that love. It's not a way to prove a point, it's not a way to build a platform or be a pundit, but it's really because I, 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 I feel called to make sure that, that we live to making sure that every person um, is honored in the dignity and likeness of God. And that means that black people need to be honored and given dignity and basic respect because we too are
0: a reflection of the I've I really appreciate your, uh, a lot of what you're posting on social media. I mean, back when I was in Chicago, it was easy to give you a hug. Uh, and, uh, but seeing, seeing your posts online, I, um, I'm angered by them. I'm encouraged by them. I'm excited by them. I'm challenged by them. Um, what has been, uh, you know, you talk uh, at the as you introduce yourself that you are this uh, a social activist and and that racial justice is so important to you. Um, wh- where has that come from, like, um, and why is that so important? And especially, I think um, I ask, you know, as the broader white community, racial justice sometimes is couched in a um, a political thing, or it seems like it's not needed or i mean we could we can hash some of this out a little bit later but but what is it what is it for you that like this is so crucial to not only who you are as a person but to your faith and your understanding of, of christ
1: yeah um interestingly enough my my roots start in the home my mom uh, before I knew what feminism was or anything, my mom insisted that she be called Ms. Calhoun. She didn't want to be Mrs. Calhoun. She did. She married, so she certainly wasn't going to be miss. Um, and I was like, well, you know, people would insist you're Mrs. Calhoun. And they were they would do it, presuming that that would be honoring to her. And she would be like, No, men don't get titles based on their marital status. Why should women? And at the time, as a kid, I was like, why is mom so extra? Why is she <laughs> creating all this drama? They just want to call you a name and, you know, it's, it's normal, it's regular. Why, why is that important to you? Um, but what she was modeling was that there are, are constructs in our society that, that kind of limit or, or make other certain people. And that she was just simply refusing to participate in that. And so... Um, Right now, there's a, there's a phrase that, that you'll also often hear in activists and, and conscious self circles called being woke. And so long before I'd ever n- heard the word woke, my mama was woke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she was training me and raising me in a way that she was constantly challenging certain assumptions. For example, as a kid, uh, she was an educator and, you know, we, we had very intellectual conversations all the time. And when people would hear me speak, they'd be like, oh, he's so intelligent. He's so articulate. And she would challenge that statement. And she wasn't putting me down. She wasn't belittling me. But she was challenging the the narrative that Black male children and Black children, period, aren't articulate. That if we Mm -hmm. are smart or if we are able to communicate well, that somehow we're this huge exception to the norm. And so she was really pushing back on that narrative. And so I never felt like she was saying anything negative about me. But I was like, again, why is it so important for you to, to challenge these things that people are saying that are, are supposed to be compliments, right? And so she, she awakened in me just a kind of a, a, an awareness that there are certain things that people say and do, that even if they mean them well, they're not helpful. And uh, that was just something that I kind of had in my back pocket. So if we fast forward to my college years, I became part of a church that was engaged in figuring out how do we make our neighborhood better? And this church, uh, it uh, we we learned the basics of grassroots organizing. And so that meant we went into the neighborhood, and we talked to people, we said, well, where are the issues and what's wrong with our neighborhood? We identified that um, drugs and, Violence were things that were really concerns of the people in our neighborhood, and we we're like, "Well, how do we fix it?" And so we started to learn about all these connecting dots. We learned about um, recidivism and, and the fact that people from our people in our neighborhood, um, many of them had been to jail, and in coming out of jail, they weren't able to get jobs. And we said, "Well, let's get them jobs." And we found out that because they had felonies, they were barred from certain jobs. And we are like well we got to get the get that changed and so that took us from working and trying to make 79th street better all the way to Springfield Illinois our state capital and changing laws and getting laws changed to make sure that people who had felony convictions could get certain jobs like being a barber or being able to to haul trash or to to carry swine like these were the kinds of things that people were barred from because of the way our our laws were set up against people who were returning from prison. Um, But it didn't stop there. We were like, well, what else needs to happen? And we realized that there needs to be deeper connections with the local businesses, that the local churches had a role to play, that local schools had a role to play, that local police had a role to play. And so all of that um, stirred in me this understanding that there's a cycle, that the things that are wrong in our neighborhood aren't simply because, oh, people just don't care. That was the narrative that was fed to me. Things that are wrong aren't simply because, oh, things are just bad and it's always been that way. Um, I learned the history of my neighborhood. I learned that certain policies created those conditions of my my neighborhood. I learned that um, economic practices influenced what was happening and perpetuating what was happening. And so I saw that all this stuff was connected, that it was interlocked, and that it was changeable, it was fixable. It was something that we could have an impact on, and so <laughs> that leads me into, um, so like I said, we we went to Springfield. We got laws changed. We uh, I saw firsthand what it meant to to reduce shootings and to increase school attendance and to um, increase the property value of, of of places in our neighborhood. We we had a hand in all of that to make our neighborhood better, and it lit an unquenchable fire in me. Um, and even when I realized that the, that church that I was a part of at the time, that it was a really unhealthy church and it had some really toxic things, I gained something that would literally change the course of, of my life. And so since then, every time I see the connecting points, every time I see um, the legacy of what discrimination and the legacy of what um, what's basically abuse culture, when I see it, I feel like, yes, I can do something about that. Feel like I'm gifted to do something about that. And so that's where my faith comes in. It's, you know, I, I think about Moses. Um Moses was in Pharaoh's house. Moses was somebody who was trained up from from just about birth to lead a nation. I don't think Moses could have foreseen that his experience in Pharaoh's house would prepare him to lead a nation through the desert, through the wilderness. In the same way I was in a church that, that, again, wasn't a very healthy place for me, but I was getting trained to lead people to freedom. I was getting trained to lead people into liberation. Um, and so I, I really value that. And I feel like this is something God gave for me to do, that I didn't survive the kind of, um, the kind of church environment I was in. I didn't survive that simply to, to say, oh, I, I made it out, but I survived it to lead others. Um, and to, to make sure that others in my neighborhood or in my community could, could know that they have a part in how to make the world a better place.
0: What has been, uh, what's been some of the backlash as you've pursued justice, what uh, or the pushback?
1: Oh, all the pushback. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's interesting. I do racial justice, but I'm also a gay man, so I do LGBT justice, and yeah. those connect in some some interesting ways. Um, but what often happens, um, no matter what the topic or what the conversation is, um, there's there's a presumption that uh, that by speaking out against it against these kinds of injustices, that we're creating a problem. So often when we when we talk about race, we say, oh, if you would the, re- the pushback is, oh, if you would just stop talking about it, then everything would be okay. But what that what that narrative does is it 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 suggests or it insists, that oppression came from the oppressed, and that's impossible. Oppression requires power, and people with power use their bias to to create conditions and force those conditions upon another group of people. And so so I'm often pushing back on that, um, but I'm also pushing back on things like, oh, Black Lives Matter is a communist setup or, you know, pushing back on things like everything was okay until Barack Obama became president. That's when everything went wrong. Or, you know, America was so much of a better place until recently, and then all of a sudden everything became wrong. And it, it, what that argument does, it reflects the ignorance um, that basically white privilege, um, it reflects the image that, or it reflects the image that. Ah, it reflects the ignorance that white privilege um, kind of blankets over all of us. And that is Mm -hmm. that everything really was okay or that at some point in in history that everything was really good. And the the sad reality is that unless you were white and often unless you were male, things weren't good. And you can just, if you walk your way through history, you see that in every point, and with an unbroken line, somebody was being oppressed. Somebody was getting the short end of the six. Somebody was being abused. Somebody was having land seized. Somebody was having their bodies violated. Somebody. And um, in this country, it's, it's always been um, people of color, especially um, Black people and Indigenous or Native Americans. Um, right. And so the fact that, you, that your recollection says, oh, no, it was better at some point really just means you haven't talked to anybody who was in those positions. It means that you're only looking at it from your position. And what we often do, it's just kind of human nature, is we presume everyone else is experiencing things the same way that we are. Um, and in a, in a country that is still very much sec- still segregated, maybe not by policy directly, um, but we're still segregated. And that means that we only often talk to people who are in the same experience or the same context as like us. And right. so it, it just kind of keeps that ignorance going and then when we do talk about it or when we do have video now that we have new technology that makes it more accessible you feel like oh no something changed and the reality is nothing's changed it's just exposed it's just visible yeah you can see it now right yeah
0: and you're and all that you're saying i mean it makes me realize the all lives matter movement i mean is for me there i mean right now there's a social media hashtag going around, all lives didn't matter. And, um, there's pictures of slaves or when, uh, lynchings where it's a bunch of white people, uh, celebrating a lynching, you know, Mm -hmm. and they're smiling for the camera. And so that what you're explaining that ignorance is sure as Christians, we do believe that all lives matter, but that is not the reality currently. And it hasn't been the history, uh, within our nation, um, and so to, to say that phrase, I mean, I, I, uh, it's exactly what you're saying, that people aren't aware of how white privilege has really put a blanket over many things and has allowed us um, allowed us not to think through um, a lot of real things.
1: Yeah. And the other interesting thing about the response or the reaction, all lives matter. Um, I mean, there's a there's a blatant part where we never see that phrase or that response come up unless we're talking about black lives. Right. You don't see it when, right. when someone says blue lives matter. Right. You know, it, it doesn't be, oh, no, 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 you can't only talk about police. We never see that. But if we talk about black lives, then there's an issue. Then there's a problem. Right. And then the other part is, well, if all lives matter what are you doing to ensure that where where is mm-hmm. the action that accompanies that state right um, right black lives matter can show that that we've been um we've been instrumental in raising awareness about the trans women of color who have been killed in the last few years and how consistent and how how huge that that epidemic is but that it's not getting the proper coverage and people have been misgendered in the news and, and police reports you know, we raise that noise. Uh, we talk about, say her name, that hashtag and, and, and the, the many women who don't get the same attention that men get when they're killed or, or when they're harmed by police. Um, we have supported um, the Latinx community um, and, you know, in situations like Orlando, instead of Black Lives Matter becoming the, the loud voice there, we defer and we, and we amplify the voices of Latinx people and the Latinx organizers who are already on the ground. And so some people say, well, where was Black Lives Matter then? We were amplifying the Latinx organizers because it wasn't our our space in that time. And so what what we have is a track record of showing up for all lives. We have that, you know, that background. We We have ways that we show that we do amplify the stories of white people who are harmed by cops. Because the reality is, if we can, if anything that works on Eliminating or reducing police violence benefits everyone. There's, there's no way that if it gets better for us, that other people are not going to benefit as well. Um, and so, you know, that's one of those things that you, it's frustrating sometimes that, that people are so concerned about, the, about that semantic point that they remain apathetic to the opportunity if all lives matter was showing up and having actual rallies and doing work, I promise you, I would have no problem showing up and supporting it, mm. but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's the hard part.
0: Yeah. When I, we did a, a lament service at our church, um, earlier this week for, um, the, sh- the past, the shootings in the last week and a uh, prayer service for, um, Alton and, uh, Philando and, um, and and one of the things we had a space of dialogue and we were talking, um, and one one lady individual uh, one lady she was sharing about um, her conversations with some others and her and she said you know prayers aren't enough our actions, um, you know prayers aren't enough we need to act and and she was talking about well but I don't know what those actions are, um, in a predominantly white uh, suburb in Rhode Island, uh, she was asking well what are those next steps what what should I do? How, how would you answer that question, especially for uh, white individuals that want to um, do more than just pray, uh, that want to be activists? What, 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 what would be a list of a handful of things that people can do?
1: That is a really, really important question. And um, what I love is that there's an awareness that we do have to do more than just pray. Prayer is important as Christians, it's something that, that we believe connects us with God, connects us with each other. Um, and it's it connects us with ourselves. It helps us be aware of, of God speak to me and, and show me what I should be doing. Um, and so that, that what should I be doing? Um, how do we take next steps? That's where um, I love the work um, of white allies who are organizing for racial justice. Um, um, organizations like Surge showing up for racial justice. Um, there, there are a host of other organizations that are train, teaching and training white people to do the work of supporting people of color in making a difference for racial justice. Um, and so the one of those first things often is Go talk to other white people. Go help other white people understand this. Because no matter what, when I start talking about the injustice I experience, because of the way our society is, because of the narratives that still haven't been debunked in your mind, um, there's some doubt. There's some, oh, well, he's just trying to to get get his way. He's just playing the victim, blah, 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 blah. but when white people show up and they talk to other white people about the injustice that I'm experiencing, they they know how they see it. They know the things that they had to work through, um, and so they're able to help other people and speak from their own experiences. Um, and the other part is, uh, for white people who are responding to racial justice issues, it's something that you really do have to opt into. Our society doesn't demand it of you. It doesn't require it of you. Whereas as a person of color. It is always required of me. I don't have an option to opt out of it. And so when I get tired and when I get frustrated, I can't just retreat. I can't just turn it off. I can't just say, oh, I'm just not going to deal with that anymore, um, which means that I'm always on. And so having white allies who show up and, and speak out means that I get to take a break, and that's important. You, know, you can't be on all the time. You can't fight the good fight all the time. You need support. You need some folks, again, going back to the Moses reference, we're going to hold up your arms and let you know that, hey, you are not doing this work in vain. That's great. You know? And then I think further things would, would be um, just how we, how we learn. Make sure that your, your information sources include people of color and people who are sexual and gender minorities. Um, make sure that you're amplifying those voices. Uh, so often it is too easy to find cisgender white male voices to tell us all the things and even this it's very often that they're sell, telling us things that other people women people of color have been saying for years but because they don't have the identity privilege of being white male they don't get the same credibility they don't get the same amplification so when you if when you leverage your identity privilege when you leverage leverage your whiteness or your maleness or whatever other um, affluence or any other kind of privilege that that you might possess when you leverage that to to raise our voices and to to uh, to give amplification to what we're doing, it does things that we can't do ourselves. And that's the thing we can't we can't win alone. Alone, no one can do this by themselves. Um, and I, I I always say I think we all have a role to play. We just have to find our role um, yeah. and do it to our fullest.
0: You talk a lot, and I know you've uh, given seminars on this and a lot of social media posts, but you talk a lot about the idea of um, intersection, intersectionality. Um, and I think this is really important, And it, um, but I, I don't think as many people understand the idea as we should. So can you explain that a bit um, and kind of introduce us
1: to that concept? Sure thing. Um, so intersectionality, it's a it's a fun tongue twister kind of word, um, <laughs> but it, 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 it's a big word that has a lot in it. Um, And so intersectionality uh, is, uh, to to my own little dictionary version, is it's the interlocked way that social categorizations, categorizations, let me start that again. Intersectionality is the interlocked way that social categorizations apply to an individual or group, creating systems of privilege and disadvantage. This uh, idea was first developed by Kimberly Crenshaw and other womanist and feminist uh, scholars. And so what all of those words mean is that there are ways that we have privilege, uh, which is an unearned benefit or perk um, that's based on, based on social order. So what are the social orders? Social orders include things like uh, whiteness versus blackness, whiteness universally being something that's preferred, that's, that's highlighted, that's seen, blackness being something that's negative and pushed away or, or um, treated poorly. And if you're somewhere in between there, pretty much everyone's still pushing toward whiteness. Another uh, social order is masculine versus feminine. Um, our society has a million and one good and positive words for being masculine and a million and one bad negative words for being feminine. Um, in fact, it's sometimes hard to find a masculine insult, <laughs> um, that's not rooted in, in being an insult toward women or something bad toward women. Um, and then we could go on from everything from being upper class to lower class, upper class being the favored, um, being educated versus having no education. Um, all these are, uh, race, gender, religion, class, education, um, citizenship, um, language, sexuality, uh... Abilities, what kind of family you have, personality. These are all ways that are, are benefited for some people and there are disadvantages for others. And what happens is they work together. So we're used to, for example, um, if you have a woman, uh, you'd say, okay, well, women's rights, that's, you know, feminism, that'll take care of all, all of the stuff that she experiences. But if you have a woman of color, sometimes bits, bits of her story, being a person of color, get left out of the conversation about feminism. And then if you're on the, on the racial side of it, sometimes stories about what happens to people of color doesn't include the narratives of women. And so as a woman, she's both affected by her gender and her race. Um, and if she is a um, sexual minority, if she's a queer woman, then she also has another layer of what makes our story unique. And so instead of isolating those things out and making them into silos of, of justice or silos of information, when we start to, to weave those stories together, we get a much fuller picture. And we see that women, queer women of color get marginalized in ways that, that larger groups probably never even have to think about. Um, and so intersectionality is, is the, the framework that ties all of that together. It reminds us that we can possess both privilege and disadvantage. It reminds us that um, the unique experiences that that work together benefit and um, harm us in different ways. And so when we do the work to see that bigger picture, I think we get a much better picture of what liberation and what justice could look like. And we don't leave out the stories of people. Um, one way that I, that I experienced this is I'm a black, Cisgender man of color, um, when I who is uh who is gay, when I go to Boystown, Town, which is the LGBT neighborhood in Chicago, Boystown Town is very, very white, and so people go, Oh, Boys Town, it will be great for you. But what people of color experience in Boystown Town is there are security guards who are hired to stand up and down the, the, the main street where people kind of hang out and socialize. security guards that if you're a person of color, they're going to shoo you on within seconds of you stopping to even do something like say hi or hug someone. Whereas if you're white, I've watched people lay in the gutter and vomit with not a word from the security guards. Um, And so Boys Town and the, the, the bars that are there don't create a hospitable environment for people of color. And so Boys Town, even though it's supposed to be the safe space for LGBT people, isn't safe for LGBT people of color. And so that's where intersectionality would say just because it's gay doesn't mean it's all okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have to we have to look at are there are there bars that that people of color are attending? If not, why not? Are the 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 local councils and the business councils are they inclusive of people of color or are they mighty white? And you know, when you start seeing those patterns you go, "Oh, there are levels to this. There are layers to this." There is more than just, oh, it's gay, so we've got it covered. Um, but we start seeing that there's there's lots more pieces to the puzzle. Yeah.
0: And that can seem I feel like that can seem overwhelming mm-hmm. when you start discovering those things. Yet at the same time it gives like when I understand justice, there's it's so much justice is so much more holistic, which also causes me to hope more that justice is better than we could imagine. Um, so it, it's this, it, there's a tension there from, as, as you describe this.
1: Definitely. Um, you know, we, we have the, 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 the quote, um, we're, we're not free until everyone's free. And intersectionality helps us remember that we really have to understand what freedom for everyone looks like. And yes, that is a moving target. Um, it's not like, okay, well, we finally accomplished diversity. Um, no, because we've got a very jacked up world. There are lots of pieces for us to figure out. Um, and that's okay. You know, it's, it's, it is a big daunting, seemingly daunting task. Um, but what I've, what I've observed is that as we make space for more people, as we make room for everyone to, to live out their authentic selves and to be seen and to be heard it makes room for us to also be seen and also be heard. It makes our stories valid. It makes our experiences mean something and be worthwhile. Um, it means we can live into more of who we are rather than trying to conform into the ideal. You know, and I, again, as a person of faith, I think that, that we were all created individually in the image and likeness, um, because there is a unique expression for each of us to contribute to the world. Uh, we weren't designed to all fit into one cookie cutter mold. Um, and if we can make space for everyone to be who they were or who, who they are, um, it makes the world a, a much more beautiful place to sound flowery.
0: <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Just talk to white people. What do, you want us to, what do you want us to know and understand and what can we do better and how can we come alongside you um, and your community um or what what do we need to be slapped across the face with um, <laughs> i mean just and maybe i asked this selfishly for myself but um give it to me
1: <laughs> yeah well well fortunately, fortunately uh nathan you you've been somebody who has definitely been showing up for years um i don't Thank have you. to explain a whole lot of this stuff to you and so that that means you're a safe person to talk to so being a safe person and being somebody who, when 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 all hell is breaking loose in the media, you, you send me a message and you check in on me. That matters. That's really important. Mm. And sometimes I can't even respond to it in the moment, and that's okay. Um, but for you to know that the fact that you're aware and that you're conscious of that I might be experiencing something unique um, and could use some support, that means a lot. Um, so checking in on your friends and not demanding a response, but... Letting them know that you're thinking about them. I think that's really important. Um, listening to another narrative, listening to a whole, another story. Um, so often we're used to being handed one story and we're taught that that one story tells us the whole the whole story. And the reality is that there's, there's always more than one story. There's always one, more than one perspective. You and I can sit next to each other in a movie theater and watch the same movie and then go describe it later and describe it almost in completely different terms. because. Your experiences, your background, what movies you've seen, what movies you like, your taste, all of that informs how you see it. But if you never ask me and never get to know my story and my taste and everything, you'll think that everybody liked or hated the movie the same way as you. And so that that requires some intention. We have to go out. and We have to have more conversations. Um, we don't have to be weird about it. It was like, hey, black person, tell me about your experiences. <laughs> yes, <right. laughs> That's awkward. <laughs> yep but um but you know it's it's natural for us not to have proximity not to be close to other people but there's ways we can do that if if you know that you live in an all-white neighborhood and that everyone around you is is white or the only time you see people of color is at work or or at starbucks or something like that then that means you might have to do some work you might have to make sure that you're following um other media outlets that you're watching some some other uh kind of tv shows that you're Doing something to get more than just what you have by default. Um, so there's there's that. Um, there's some good reading. There's books like The New Jim Crow. There's uh, uh, Between the World and I. There's there's all kinds of information that's available. Um, don't count on your black friends to be your teachers and to to give you all the stuff. <laughs> your Google works just as good as mine. Um, it's okay that if you're stumped to ask for help and say, Hey, I was looking for this or I tried that, but sometimes people just, just kind of sit back and it's like, feed me, feed me. (laughs) And that, that can be tiring. Um, so yeah, get, get busy, increase the, 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 the sources of information you have. If there's a, a racial justice workshop, like the ones that we present through evangelicals for social action, show up to it, get there, fly there, do what you have to do, um, and start the conversations. You know, get it going. Ask some people just to, to to share their stories. I also have a resource, and we can link to it later. Um, that is about intentional dialogue, and it helps people to instead of asking closed-ended questions like "How could you think that?" or "Or um, tell me why you would do something like that," um, it asks questions like, "You know, tell me about how you experienced this." It opens up so that people can begin to understand in ways that aren't, you know, divisive or harsh. Um, so that's that's a resource. It's just a, kind of a two-page PDF that we can um, make available to to the listeners. Um, but yeah, there's lots of ways for us to get to know people better than the way we do.
0: Yeah, I've I've found one of the things that has benefited me is through social media. Mm-hmm. I mean, my Twitter feed right now, I have follow, followed. Um, a lot of individuals of color that I have drastically learned from um, and that have, I mean, they are my go-to sources, whether I know them or not. Mm -hmm. And they are um, changing the way their stories and their simple 140 character tweets are changing the way I understand um, the movement, the black lives matter movement, um, intersectionality, um, and so much more. And, you know, um, that that's and on top of all that you've said, those have been really helpful to me. Um, what, um, final question here, but, um, and, and we kind of talked about this in the beginning, but you know, the podcast is called the why behind the what. And so we know what you're doing, but, uh, why is it that you do this? What, um, why? Yeah. Why is it is, or who is it? But why do you, why do you do this and, and willingly, um, pour yourself out, uh, uh, to do this,
1: yeah, um, you know, I, I I try not to say things that sound super spiritual and, and 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 so forth, but I remember the harshness that I experienced in my church, and um, and that was harshness because I was a, uh, or I am a gay man, and we were in a church context that believed that that was sinful and that I needed to become heterosexual. Um, All the work that I was doing fighting racial justice in that church and, you know, or through that church, all of that became something that I had to use to liberate myself, that I had to use all that I knew about organizing and all that I knew about how systems and power work um, to realize that I was being oppressed. I was being harmed in some specific ways and that to later realize that other people were being harmed in the same way. And I remember there were times when I was in that church, and I was, um, to kind of give some context, um, in my pursuit of becoming heterosexual, I quit school, I told friends and family to forget about me, I gave up my car, I shut down my business, Um, I moved into the basement of the church and was living under 24-hour supervision. And all of this was so that um, hopefully God would change my orientation. Um, And I did it willingly. Um Like I said, it was a, a toxic environment, but I didn't know what else to do um, and in doing all that, I became hopeless. Um, I remember there were times where I did not want my life to go on i was I was full of despair, and I remember in those times that I felt like Jesus showed up for me. I felt that um, when I felt worthless to God, that God was showing me I had worth. I felt that when um, when I was hopeless that there was still hope, and that so much of my story paralleled what Jesus went through. Like He came with purpose, and he came with a mission, and and people didn't get it, and people hated him for who he literally was. And through all that, he persevered and was able to make an impact that changed the world, and that is still impacting lives to this day. And something about what Jesus was willing to go through, and something about what Jesus was willing to do um, the way Jesus poured himself out uh, gave me hope and encouragement to say that I could pour myself out and that I would still have life, that I could give my all and that there'd still be something poured into me. Um, and so when it, when I came through that experience and I realized, one, that I'd survived, but two, that I wanted to go back in and fight in a good way to make change happen, it was like, I'm not normal. <laughs> 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 I'm I'm clearly not wired the way the average person is. There's something about the way God designed me that would experience something like that and then turn around and say churches and say to churches, "Hey, we can do better. Here's what happened to me. Here's where you got it wrong." But guess what? I'm here to help you do better. Something about that is I think weird and a, and peculiar and I think that is a God-given gift cuz like I said, most people wouldn't even be Christians at this point. Um But for me, it was something that deepened my faith. And in me doing this work of racial justice and LGBT inclusion, in me pouring myself out to make sure that people are safe and people are heard, um, I feel that it is just a reflection of who I've been created to be. It's something that gives me life and energy. It does cost. It does uh, take a lot out of me. Um, But I I feel like, yeah, but I'm built for this. I'm set for this. Um, So it's something that I do gladly. And uh, hopefully, I'm reflecting um, reflecting the, the the image of the one who did the same for me.
0: It's been fun for me to see. I mean, even from when we met first met at the Marin Foundation to see how you've grown and your prophetic voice. I feel has just you have you have filled. You've grown into a man who knows his voice and knows it well and is unashamed. And um, it's cool to see. Um, even now, from afar uh, and via social media, it's it's awesome to see kind of how you know I think God has really poured into you so much so that you you are you are a willing and eager man to um, pursue what many other people can't pursue um, or don't want to pursue. So it's it's cool for me to see that. Um, so I appreciate you being willing to chat for a bit. How can people follow you? I mean. The, the work you're doing, social media or a website or Twitter, all that good stuff?
1: Sure. Um, I am very, very active on Facebook. Uh, if you search for my name, Darren Calhoun, that's D-A-R-R-E-N, Calhoun, C-A-L-H-O-U-N, um, you'll find my face and I have a page you can click like on. Um, I update that the most often. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my Twitter name is Hey Darren H-E-Y-D-A-R-R-E-N. Um, and if you feel free to follow me, any of those places, um, and then in the, in the, uh, resources, we'll also link to the organizations that I'm working with. Um, feel free to come visit me. If you're in Chicago, come to to urban village. Um, if you're in the South loop, come hang out and sing with us and dance with us. Um, and I also, um, am active with organizations like the reformation project um with gay christian network and so i'll be at both of those conferences in october and in january of next year um show up there i am an extrovert who loves hugs so <laughs> it is i
0: i can vouch for that <laughs> it is true
1: it is true so it is not weird to say hey you're daring could have a hug and i'm totally gonna give you a hug and then i'm gonna be like where do i know you from
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's right hug first questions right right
1: right right um so yeah please and then i also have my own my own website darrencalhoun.com um that is also where i'll have the the resource to the dialogue um, pdf um so you can go there and see some things i've written um and reach out to me via email there and uh yeah i'd love to hear from you i'd love to answer more questions um so keep in touch
0: Thanks, Darren. And I'll again, for those listening, I'll put all that in our show notes so you can go on either iTunes or Podbean or however you're listening to this uh, and you can click on those links uh, and get better connected with Darren. So, Darren, thank you so much and uh,
1: really appreciate you being on The Why Behind the What. And thank you. It was awesome to be here. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to support this great work that you're doing, Nathan.
0: So, here's to Darren Calhoun a justice-seeking, prophetic, extroverted hugger. Here's to raising awareness, pursuing reconciliation, and being woke. Here's to love and peace being our response to hatred and violence. And here's to the why behind the what. Cheers!